This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend warriors from Michigan politics and government, folks. We have had such great guests the past few weeks that I have neglected to run through all the incredible stories that have piled up over time and continue on through this past week in Michigan politics and government. But I'm going to try and make up for that right now. Let's look at first, and this sounds minor, but maybe it isn't. Democrats in the state Senate, in the minority, say they will not give immediate effect votes for bills anymore if, quote, bills don't solve problems, unquote. In other words, if the Republican majority passes legislation in the Senate, they have a majority to pass the bill, but they need a two-thirds majority to get immediate effect. And the Republicans by themselves don't have enough members to give the bill immediate effect. What does immediate effect mean? A lot of people maybe don't totally understand what's going on here. It sounds obvious, but it's a little more complicated. If a bill passes through the Michigan legislature, the House and the Senate, and it is signed into law by Governor Gretchen Whitmer, that's not a sure thing, as you know, because she's issued many vetoes over the last two years. But let's say she signs it. It means that, in effect, the bill is a law and it goes into effect immediately. Okay, what if it doesn't get immediate effect? Well, it will not go into effect until 90 days after the close of the legislative session. And the legislative session these days and for the past several decades lasts all the way up to, like, December 30th, 31st when the legislature adjourns sine die, that's a Latin phrase meaning without day, with no more days left in the session. That means it's going to be approximately April 1st, 2022, let's say, that a bill that might pass this week without immediate effect would go into effect April 1st, 2022. Well, now that's a good thing in many cases because there's some bills that become law that the public and the news media and the electorate and maybe an industry that might be involved do not want to go into immediate effect. They want to have time to prepare for it to go into effect. They want to get ready for it. So there is a reason not to give a bill immediate effect, but there is a lot of reason to give a bill immediate effect, particularly if it appropriates money which is what they're talking about this week. The legislature is trying to send Governor Whitmer appropriations, meaning money, to supplement holes in the current fiscal year budget. And the Democrats say they will not give it immediate effect. Well, if they don't, it's going to be ex post facto after the end of the fiscal year, which is September 1st, uh, the appropriation won't even have gone into effect until next year, so it renders it useless. So that's what the Democrats are talking about. Now, here's another complication. In the State House of Representatives, the majority has taken the habit, and the Democrats did this when they had control of the House, 
and the Republicans are doing it now, and they've done it for years. They call for immediate effect, and they don't even take a vote on it. They just gavel it through, meaning they look out over the chamber, whoever presides, and says, okay, I see enough hands raised or I see enough voices yelling that there are two-thirds in my estimation, and it goes through and it's given immediate effect. But over in the Senate, they have been in the habit of taking roll call votes on immediate effect. But my question is, why can't the Senate Republicans in the majority simply change the rule and say, you know what, we're going to do it just like the House. We'll just gavel it through. So watch out for what happens next on that front. Now, secondly, uh, Peter Lucido, former state senator, now the Macomb County prosecuting attorney, he says he's gotten more than a thousand responses to his request for information about COVID-19 related nursing home deaths from Macomb County residents. And he also asked Attorney General Dana Nessel to conduct an investigation of these nursing home deaths and whether COVID-19 patients should not have been put into these nursing homes, possibly causing death. That's what's happened in New York State that you read so much about, where they undercounted the number of deaths deliberately in nursing homes, uh, at least Governor Andrew Cuomo did, and he's now in a peck of trouble. Well, Dana Nessel refused to investigate, and she castigated Peter Lucido for launching his own little inquiry that might lead to an investigation, and the Senate Republicans are hopping mad about it. We'll see what happens with that story. Now, here's another little thing that happened this week, kind of overlooked. Canadian officials and business leaders testified before a joint Senate committee on what they contend would be the catastrophic catastrophic effect on the region, that's mainly in the Upper Peninsula, Northern Lower Michigan, if Enbridge's Line 5 pipeline is shut down this spring, as Governor Whitmer wants to do. So we'll see what happens with that. Uh, Let's go to another issue, and that is Good old daylight savings time. Well, that comes up every year as an issue when uh, either we spring forward, as we just did a week ago, or we fall back in the fall on the clock. So it not only comes up once a year, it comes up twice a year, and there's debate and controversy about it. Some people say, let's just go back to consistent Eastern Standard Time with no daylight savings time, and we never set the clock forward or take it back at any point. Other people say, no, let's have daylight savings time year-round, and it'll never go forward or back. But what we've got right now is we've got half the year on standard time. That is in the fall and winter, and we have got daylight savings time in the spring and summer. So a bill was just reported out of a state house committee this week that says uh, we're going to go on daylight savings time year round, but only if Congress allows it and if five specific surrounding states do it too. 
I bet this is not going to get all the way through the legislature and be signed by the governor, but I may be wrong. Let's see what happens. Let me also give a report on sports betting. We've had several guests on that subject over the past few weeks, and apparently February was a boom month. Over $300 million was bet online and sports betting, and that is the fastest to $300 million of any state in the country. Michigan is on track to be the fifth highest state for betting on sports in the entire country, the way things are going. Former State Representative Brant Eiten, who was a guest on this program a couple of weeks ago and now is the government affairs representative for an outfit called Sports Radar. He says Michigan's sports betting is, quote, going fantastic, unquote. Also, here's another subject, petitions and possible referenda on the ballot in 2022, LGBTQ petitions. They have enough signatures to put it on the ballot in 2022, but will the legislature act instead and take care of it so that it doesn't have to go on the ballot? And also a Freedom of Information Act reform package. That's moving through the legislature. And Progress Michigan is saying if they don't get it through, we will mount a petition drive, get it on the ballot in 2022. So let's see what happens with that. I'll be back in a minute with our first guest. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back, and we have Tori Sachs. She is executive director of Mission Rising Action. Tori Sachs, welcome to the Political Insider. Good morning, Bill. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be on. Well, let me ask you, what is Michigan Rising Action? Just tell us, and how old yeah, we, are you? Uh, Michigan Rising Action is a group that's focused on holding liberal policies and special interest networks accountable. So we, um, we do a lot of research, rapid response. We do a lot of digging into FOIAs and things like that. And we really focus on holding uh, left-wing politicians accountable. And, and you'll see a lot of fact-checks from us and things like that on our website, michiganrisingaction.org. Well, you have put out a lot of information over the last couple of weeks on a number of issues here in Michigan right now. What's on the top of your list today? Well, I think right now the top of the list is, you know, why did Governor Whitmer pay the former health director $155,000 of taxpayer money to stay quiet about his time as health director? You know, he independently, Robert Gordon, the state's health director, he was the one in charge of, you know, forcing shutdowns from October to January when he resigned. He was in charge of the state's nursing home policy. And then he abruptly resigned in January. Whitmer had him sign a non-disclosure agreement. She gave him $155,000, again, taxpayer money. And then, you know, over the last couple of weeks, there's been a lot of of outcry um, from Republicans and Democrats uh, about why the hush money payment was made. So yesterday, uh, you know, Governor Whitmer said that she was waiving the NDA with the director. 
But then this morning, she said she wasn't going to talk about his departure anymore. So I think, you know, the people of Michigan deserve to know why the former health director was given a hush money payment of taxpayer dollars and what it is that they're trying to cover up. Yeah, the uh, House committee investigating this asked uh, Robert Gordon to come and testify. He did not. He sent a letter, but it was pretty non-functional. It didn't really give them much information. Where do you think this goes from here? I mean, I, I hope that they, they use their subpoena power uh, in committee to to compel him to testify, to talk about what it is that was going on in the department. You know, Whitmer um, is playing dodgeball um, about what exactly the, the, you know, determinations were of these shutdowns. These shutdowns cost hundreds of thousands of people in Michigan their jobs. You know, at least 3,000 restaurants have gone out of business. Kids couldn't go to school for months. And we deserve to know what was going on behind the scenes there and also what was going on with this nursing home policy. Um you know, and, and paying the, the former director, who, again, was in charge of it all after her um, executive orders were ruled unconstitutional, paying him to stay quiet. Um, you know, it's clear that they're covering something up. I think we deserve to know what it is. And I think that groups like us at Michigan Rising Action, uh, members of you and the press and the uh, Republicans of the state legislature are going to continue to press until we get the answers. Tori Sachs, you mentioned nursing homes, and as you know, I'm sure Macomb County Prosecuting Attorney Peter Lucido is kind of put out a dragnet in Macomb County asking uh, citizens to give him stories about abuse that they have seen in nursing homes as a result of the governor's COVID-19 policy and uh, he has asked the Attorney General, Dana Nessel, to conduct an investigation. She says, not only uh, will I not do it, she castigated Lucido for launching this effort. The Senate Republicans, Jim Runstad, uh, state senator in particular, very angry at Dana Nessel's response. Where do you see all this going? I mean, look, Dana Nessel is more concerned about arresting a restaurant owner than she is investigating the nursing home policies in Michigan that were very similar to that in New York, um, and we know where that is now. And I think it's pretty disgraceful that she's, frankly, she's focusing on arresting restaurant owners. She's giving Governor Whitmer a pass. She's focused on this hyper-political, um, you know, effort with Governor Snyder and charging him and, and his people in Flint. I think she is Look, she's showing us who she is. You know, she's very she's a political attorney general. I think what Pete Lucido is doing in Macomb County um, is applaudable. I think he's going out. He's providing family members who believe that their loved one was a victim. He's providing them with the avenue to get an investigation, to get to the bottom of what happened. You know, several people have already formal uh, filed formal complaints in Macomb County. Um, and I think what Pete Studio is doing is, is investigating and getting to the bottom of something that happened, you know, thousands of deaths in nursing homes. And I think, you know, he's doing the job of a prosecutor, why Dana Nessel is, you know, protecting her political allies and prosecuting those that don't agree with her. COVID-19 cases are now surging, apparently, in Michigan. I don't know about deaths. I, I don't think so much. Do you think it's likely that Governor Whitmer will be under a lot of pressure from her so-called 
uh, facts and science figures to reimpose uh, lockdowns and restrictions uh, going forward? Or you think she's turned the page on that and realizes everybody kind of wants to get back to normal as fast as possible and the vaccine is not only on the way, it's actually, you know, in place right now and people are getting shots. What do you think? Look, I think that Michigan is seeing a, you know, pretty sharp rise in COVID cases right now. But the surrounding states who have less restrictions, that's Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, and Wisconsin, they're continuing to trend downward. So I think it's pretty clear that Governor Whitmer's, you know, lockdowns haven't worked. Um, You know, Michigan has not saved more lives. um, If you look at the CDC data compared to Wisconsin and Florida for deaths per 100,000, we're significantly more than both of those states. We have much higher unemployment than both Wisconsin, you know, Ohio, Indiana, and Florida. So we're not saving lives. We're not saving livelihoods. And by word, I mean Governor Whitmer with her lockdowns. And I think it's time that we, we start to look at the science and, and start to move forward. You know, I'm not really sure um, she can explain away why she did these lockdowns. The data just doesn't prove that they worked. And I think this all goes back to why. She, she, I, I believe that she forced Director Robert Gordon to, resi- to resign from the health department. I think they got in a disagreement over these lockdowns, and I think we all deserve to know what it was. Because if it was a disagreement and she forced him out, was she really making these decisions based on, you know, real science and data or on political science and polling data? And I think a lot of us think it was the latter. Tori Sachs, the Republican-led Michigan legislature took additional steps this week to send $652 million in proposed COVID-19 response spending previously vetoed by Governor Gretchen Whitmer back to her desk over objections from most Democratic lawmakers. And they're so angry about it, the Democrats, that they won't give it immediate effect. We're running out of time, but where do you think that's going to go? You know, Whitmer, Whitmer's lockdown drastically hurt people's livelihoods. I think that we have to give the small business relief into the economy. You know, Governor Whitmer's husband got a PPP loan, but she vetoed money for small businesses in Michigan. I think we have to move forward. We have to hold Governor Whitmer accountable, and we have to start helping the people in Michigan, um, you know, get back from COVID uh, and all the jobs that have been lost. Tori Sachs, great sum up. Thank you so much. Tori Sachs, Executive Director, Michigan Rising Action. Thank you, Tori Sachs. Thank you. We will be back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned and we have a most interesting guest. He is Peter Rudell. And he is chairman of the Michigan Law Revision Commission. He is also a co-leader of the Government Relations and Regulatory Practice Group with the Honigman Law Firm, which is the largest law firm in Michigan with Michigan attorneys. Let's put it that way. (laughs) And so, Peter Rudell, welcome to Political Insider. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. Well, listen, I I just want to ask you to explain, first of all, to our guests, exactly our listeners, what is the legislative uh, 
Council, which uh, created the Law Revision Commission. And what is the Law Revision Commission? Uh, those are very easy questions, Bill. No problem. <laughs> the, the, the Michigan Legislative Council was <laughs> formed in the, in, the, in the Constitution of 1963. It was it was established to to kind of be the the governing body of administrative functions between the two houses. So it houses a whole bunch of commissions. It's where the the bill drafters are housed, and it's and it's also where uh, the Michigan Law Revision Commission is housed. And and also in the Constitution back in 63, the framers tasked the Legislative Council with periodically reviewing Michigan's laws, uh, comparing them to other states, making sure that they were up to date, and and removing any um, arcane uh, laws that were still in place. And the Legislative Council, uh, immediately after the Constitution was passed, uh, passed a, a law creating the Law Revision Commission. It was subsequently updated in, in 1986. Uh, but the Law Revision Commission has been around since our Constitution and, and has a constitutional purpose to uh, make sure that we are consistently and constantly reviewing uh, our state laws to remove any outdated, obsolete, or arcane state laws. Well, you were elected or appointed as chairman of the commission early this year, I believe. By the way, congratulations. That's great. Uh, Were you selected by the other members of the Legislative Council or the commission itself, or how did that work? Yeah, so the the state law requires the Legislative Council uh, to appoint the chairman. So I was appointed by the Legislative Council, which really is comprised of the, the leaders of the Michigan legislature, both the, the House and the Senate, Republicans and Democrats. Right. And you've also got, what, some uh, other members like is Tony Derazinski, a former state senator and attorney. He's vice chair. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. Tony, Tony's been a, a member of the commission for many, many years, and, and he is the vice chair. There's also... Uh, you know, two members from the Senate and two members from the House, um, it, they, they each representing their own respective parties. So it's a it's an eight-member commission uh, that really has no partisan majority on it. It is as, as nonpartisan as a commission can get in today's environment. And you're only the fourth chairman that the commission has ever had since it was created way back in 1965, correct? Uh, correct. Correct. I succeeded uh, Richard McClellan, who was a mentor of mine, and I'm I'm delighted to be able to su- succeed him, who has been the, uh, the chair since 1986. Well, l- let me ask you, um, before 1965, when they created the commission, um, or they created the council anyway, which uh, created the commission, uh, what, how was all the stuff that you guys deal with handled? I mean, why... At this juncture in 1965, you know, literally 130 years after Michigan became a state, was there felt to be a need for something like this? Well, I think it's an outgrowth of what was, you know, the the term, I think, prior to the Constitution of 1963, our legislature was, was referred to as the horse and buggy legislature. So I think this was just a general attitude and sentiment going through the 1963 Constitutional Convention, 1961-62 Constitutional Convention, that that wanted to make sure that our legislature remained modern, right? our state of laws remained modern, and we remained in, in this state cutting edge in terms of our regulatory environment. So I think that was the attitude and the, 
the, the, the pre- prevailing views of those, you know, constitutional officers and eventually the legislative council that created the commission. You think it's worked out well? You know, I think it has, right? The commission has re, re, uh, provided a report every year since 1965. The legislature has acted on it. I think, you know, one of the things that the commission does, right, and this is a little bit more inside baseball, is right. it really kind of looks at things where there, there isn't a lobbying interest. Right. Some of the things where there isn't someone already entrenched looking to change, modernize, and, and evolve our state laws. So some of the things that, that were passed uh, that don't have kind of a natural review process around them is part of the task of the commission. Well, does the commission have a regular meeting schedule? It does not have a regular meeting schedule. Um, we, we are required to meet twice a year, and uh, we'll do so uh, you know, in the in the coming month for our first meeting this of 2021. So when you have a meeting, the two members of the Senate, I think, are Jim Runstad, a Republican, and Stephanie Chang, a Democrat. Uh, in the House, it's Representative Ryan Berman, a Republican, and Democrat Kara Hope. Is that correct? Do they show up for these meetings? Uh, they they historically have shown up for these meetings, right? And we will do everything we can to make sure that our, our, our full commission can attend and participate. Well, do you do a lot of work, in other words, without actually meeting twice a year, you yourself as chairman of the commission? I mean, what do you have to do? Yeah, so first, first and foremost, we look at uh, Michigan Supreme Court and Court of Appeals decisions in the past year to determine whether uh, the courts have recommended that the legislature review a statute, and then we, we, we parse that out and take a look to see whether uh, that uh, statute should be updated and what potentially other states have done and what is the best practice on that particular, particular statute based on the court's recommendation. Should there be a change there? Should there not? second thing we do is what's, what's happening, right, what's happening in the world. Um, and so, yes, we, we pay attention to, to other state laws, other things that may be becoming arcane. I, I think, you know, frankly, Bill, what, what excited me most about this opportunity, and, and this, this may sound kind of goofy, is COVID. Right? We're, we're living through a time of great transformation in how government delivers its services and how government operates, right? The governor, you know, I'm not getting into the debate between the legislature and the governor over who has which power and who shouldn't, but, but the question of remote meetings, remote notary, our FOIA laws, Right. All of these things, I think we are on a on a place of great transformation. And, you know, I think it's the, the rightful role of the commission to look at some of those state laws to see how they should be modernized based on the transformation we've we've encountered in the past 12 months. So when the dust settles on this COVID-19 crisis, do you see the Law Revision Commission, and maybe you've already done this, recommending the legislature, you know, there's some things you need to clean up here that will make things a lot clearer going forward if we face this again? So I don't know that we will get into the the issue of who can offer epidemic orders, who can offer emergency orders. But I think we will look at, you know, how can we operate open meetings of public bodies in a way that maximizes citizen participation? How do we make sure that in an age of digital signatures, for example, we have maintained right, uh, the, the ability to verify the intent of the signer and verify the identity of the signer. 
So some of those things uh, are, are what we would, we would look at, not necessarily uh, the epidemic orders or the emergency management uh, act of the governor. We, we probably would not look at those items. Does the commission over time make some recommendations on getting rid of dead wood in statute that's there, that doesn't need to be there, shouldn't be there based on court decisions? Yes, that is that is historically one of the primary functions of the commission. Right. Well, listen, you've given a good sum up of a very abstruse, arcane body of government that most people don't even know about, but which is extremely important. And you, Peter Rudell, are the chairman of the Law Revision Commission, just named only the fourth in history. Congratulations and thanks for being our guest. Thanks for having me, Bill. I appreciate it. We'll be back in a minute with more. This is MTN. And you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We are back and we have with us Lou Glazer. He is president of Michigan Future, based, I believe, in Ann Arbor. And uh, he has a most interesting outfit. And I want to ask him to describe it to us. Welcome to The Political Insider, Lou Glazer. Yep, thanks for having me. So Michigan Future is a think tank, nonpartisan nonprofit that started in 1991, so this is like our 30th year, kind of amazing. Yeah. Uh, and um, our focus is on the economic well-being of Michigan households. Uh, we've always thought that the right way to look at the economy was not in terms of the unemployment rate or the economic growth rate, but how well households are doing in Michigan, particularly whether or not we have a broad middle class. So we've really spent the last 30 years uh, researching sort of the changing economy because of globalization and technology, figuring out sort of with a real focus on what the good-paying jobs are and what Michigan needs to do to recreate sort of a mass middle class, which, uh, you know, to some substantial degree, Michigan... So for... All of the 20th century, from 1929 until 2000, Michigan was a top 20 state in per capita income. Um, And for the last 20 years, we've basically gone from the national average in per capita income to 12% below. So, you know, we've gone from a high-prosperity state to a low-prosperity state. And what what we've been thinking about and working on is how do do we go back to being a high-prosperity state? Yeah, uh, Lou Glazer, you came up with a very interesting article, article one of many recently, in which you made a bunch of points about the 4.3 million jobs in Michigan. You talked about the truth about the relationship between education and earnings. You talked about the majority of jobs in Michigan are in occupations that are lower wage. You talked about uh, a preponderance of jobs in the higher wage occupations require a bachelor's degree or more. And you talked about the largest category of higher paying occupations that do not require a BA are jobs that one is promoted into. Yep. Wow. You just summarized everything. Well, yeah, but elaborate a little bit. So I think, so to me, 
sort of uh, the headline of actually looking at how the labor market was working. This is before the pandemic. This is 2019 when President Trump described this as the best American economy ever. So this is in a strong economy. 56% of Michigan payroll jobs, there are 4.3 million of them, were in occupations with median wages below the national median of around 39,000. So a preponderance of Michigan jobs are lower-paying jobs, um, 56%. And that, to us, is the core challenge that Michigan has, which is we just don't have enough good-paying jobs. Well, let me ask you, the 56%, was that as high as it's ever been in the past several decades, or has it been at about that level for some time? Yeah, so the basic story is is that uh, the percent, the, the main, the reason why is so... Uh, the reason why it's as high as 56% compared, so I'd say the main shift has been in the last 20 years, and the main reason why it shifted upward is that we've never replaced all these high-paid uh, manufacturing jobs that we lost. So, so that's the main dividing line between how many jobs are sort of lower paid compared to how many jobs are better paid is that we took out a big chunk of higher-paying jobs that were largely high-paid uh, manufacturing work, which which in Michigan were basically, you know, the big decline was basically the 1980s, 1990s. So since 2000, the percent has been high. I, that, it, it just it's not going down. For comparison... The most prosperous state in the Great Lakes is Minnesota. So we're at 56% or lower paid. They're at 45%. So it's not like, so everybody's got a lot of low-paid jobs. We just have a higher proportion than the more prosperous states. Yeah, in this case, 56% is not uh, a mark of success. <laughs> Absolutely mark. not. Absolutely <laughs> it's not. the opposite. Exactly. And, and so, so you want to be lower. Uh, and Michigan, exactly. unfortunately, is on the high end. Well, in your view, what needs to be done or should be being done that maybe is not being done in Michigan to get our percentage lower toward Minnesota? Yep. So the, so that's the second core finding. The first finding is, the first headline is, more than half the jobs in Michigan are lower paid. The second finding is, and this is true not just in Minnesota, but all of the high prosperity states, is that uh, the path to high prosperity is the proportion of adults with a four-year degree or more. End of story, period. Uh, and, and as you mentioned in the introduction, not just in STEM occupations. So, and by the so, way, what is STEM? Yep, so STEM is this acronym that people use for science, technology, engineering, and math. It largely are healthcare professionals and engineering and IT professionals. And everybody's, you know, we've been telling our kids over and over and over again that that's, that that's the only reliable path to good-paying jobs. It turns out, one, that it is a path to good-paying jobs, but secondly, of those jobs that pay more than $40,000 a year, STEM is only 27%. So there's, you know, there's almost 70% in non-STEM. So, so 
it's a bachelor's degree or more with any major that is the key to both individual success and community success. In Michigan, it's interesting. Michigan's in the mid-30s in the proportion of adults with a four-year degree. In the the mid-30s, you mean out of 50 states. Exactly. And in the mid-30s in per capita income. The two go hand in hand. Okay. Well, what what else uh, needs to be done outside of a four-year degree? Right. Well, so you mentioned these promotion jobs, which I think is really interesting. Most of us end up in good-paying jobs, uh, good-paying careers, because of the jobs we get promoted to, not our first job. And and that turns out to be true for people who have a four-year degree and people who don't have a four-year degree. And and what those second jobs increasingly are rewarding are what sort of people call soft skills. It's this ability to work with, solve problems with, and ultimately manage people who don't look like you and don't think like you. So it's, and and those are the kinds of skills, you know, they're people skills, they're liberal arts skills. They're, those skills turn out for careers to be more important than sort of technical skills. That learning, you know, we have this real focus now, we're telling everybody that they should learn how to code or be a welder or be an accountant. Coding, welding, and accounting, first of all, are all automatable, but even if they weren't, they're not the core skills that get you the promotion and the way you get good paying jobs for most of us is through the promotion. So it's it's an emphasis on these sort of broader, rigorous, so-called soft skills that uh, that we need to emphasize, not just for those who are getting four-year degrees, although that still is the most reliable path, but for everybody. Yeah, Lou Glazer, you are aware, I know, that uh, out of this massive $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief package approved by Congress and President Joe Biden last week, uh, something like $10.2 billion is supposed to be coming into Michigan. Yeah, a lot uh, of money. And, and my I, I question, I guess, based on what you've been saying is, is there an opportunity there for Michigan to use that money, uh, the legislature and the governor to get together and figure out how to use it to improve the situation for Michigan when it comes to jobs and the economy. Uh, so, yeah, so look, I mean, there there obviously is, is some need to provide for people and small businesses that have really been harmed by, by the shutdown. And so that, I mean, I think most of us would agree that should be priority one. But some of the money, if it is used to create a sort of higher-paid Michigan going forward, should really be focused on sort of building the kind of uh, birth-through-college education system that prepares everybody for good-paying jobs in the future. That's the most important economic development priority. Yeah. Listen, Lou Glazer, you've given a great sum-up of uh, where we are economically in the job picture here in Michigan, what we need to do to improve. Lou Glazer, president of Michigan Future, thanks for being our guest, Lou Glazer. My pleasure. We'll be back next week with Bill Moore.